I was looking at the church and not just the church locally, but the church universal. And I was reading the Bible (laughs) and I looked at the church and I read the Bible and I read the Bible and I looked at the church and I said, something's missing. There's a disconnect because the church was not fully mirroring. We mirror it to the best of our ability. We're part of the church. We are the church. So we mirror the word to the best of our ability. But I felt something was missing. And I thought the problem was me. But I think the bigger problem is we seek to embrace all of the disciplines of the faith. We seek to follow the word of God. But we're all still growing together. And so, yes, I felt a disconnect because I was burnt out. And I didn't know how to get back to wholeness. Hi there. Welcome to Sacred Ordinary Days with Jen Giles Kemper. I am so thrilled to be back with you. I recently had a conversation with Dr. Barbara Peacock. She is the author of Soul Care and African American Practice, which came out in 2020 with IVP and has been in our shop ever since. Her book also won the 2021 Christianity Today Award of Merit in Spiritual Formation. Many of you have read and loved her book. I know because you've told me, (laughs) but whether you've read it or not, I hope this conversation today is a window into an invitation into both spiritual practice, contemplative life, and also a greater understanding of those in specifically African-American Christianity. Dr. Peacock has researched and studied and written widely on these topics And her conversation with me back in January was a very generous one. Barbara describes the primary function of soul care and spiritual direction as providing a loving, trusting, and contemplative environment that focuses on experiencing the presence of God. With that in mind, I invite you to join us at the table. Barbara, do you prefer Barbara or Dr. Peacock? Obviously, we don't want to... We don't want to miss out on the doctor when you worked so hard to earn it. And it's an important part of your work, I imagine. So I'm happy to call you Dr. Peacock or Barbara, whichever, whichever feels best to you. I definitely don't mind Barbara and I definitely don't mind Dr. Peacock. And I think sometimes we struggle with titles. I'm not caught up on titles by no means, <laughs> but for our conversation, I think Dr. Peacock will be fine. And if you say Barbara, I'll be fine too. Okay. That sounds great. That was, that was my hunch. I have read your book. I read it this last year and one was just stunned by the beautiful cover. I love a good book cover, but I felt like the book cover also did a better job than most kind of warmly welcoming you into, into the book. And then you open it up and you've got these, these 10 chapters on spiritual direction and spiritual disciplines and then prayer disciplines specifically. And you've tied, I'm going to use the word saint loosely here, but you've tied a number of saints throughout generations who you feel like have embodied and lived each of these different disciplines, which I thought was such a beautiful and interesting way to approach that. So would you just start off telling us a little bit about yourself and your book? Like if someone, if someone didn't know anything about you, what would you share first? That's kind of three questions in one, Jen. I it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I don't mind. Uh, <laughs> I don't mind at all. I'm good. I'm good with that. With self, I am a native of North Carolina. So I'm a Carolina girl. I was raised on a farm which had strong Christian values. After I wrote the book, I began to do some research uh, more in-depth research in, about my family. I think so often we look look for the generational tree. Mm. But I asked my brother, who still lives in Columbus County, to do some research on the land and discovered that my great-grandfather owned over 100 acres there in Columbus and Bladen County, North wow. Carolina. So I talked to my first cousin, who is a historian, who's the historian, family historian. And I said, that's a lot of acreage. I was like, how did he obtain that, you know, back in the early 1900s? And 
She said, oh, Barbara, you remember 40 acres and a mule? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, well, that's more than 40 acres. Sure is. A hundred. I said, so did he. So I was asking myself, it couldn't have been for each child or so it just wasn't calculating numerically. And so uh, my brother went to the courthouse and found out and got the deed. Hmm. And so he paid for that land. So I said, that would have been a lot of savings to save money to pay for that land. We don't have all of it now. We have about a quarter of it, but we're thankful for that. And so being a country girl raised on a farm, I grew up like we, we will call it in the woods. <laughs> we, lived, we lived in the woods, so we didn't have any neighbors. It was my mother's house and my grandmother's house, my mother and my father and my grandmother, and my deceased grandfather. Our houses were the only homes there. And uh, as you would say, they would be a stone's throw away from right. each other. So in that environment, I was I. I didn't know I was being raised contemplative, but I was being raised very contemplative. Hmm. We had every fruit tree you can imagine. We had all kinds of gardens and farmland. And we raised our money on the soil of the land. We grew tobacco and cucumbers and corn. They were some of the products we grew. Early on, our family grew quite a bit of cotton but uh, later on, our family faced that out, and the main crop was tobacco. And my favorite fruit was the watermelon. And I love mm. the watermelon patch that was adjacent to our home. And so that's kind of like who I am, and that gives me gives us the background for my contemplative journey. Yeah. And so as we as it relates to the cover, originally we had a different cover from the publishing company, which was a nice cover. But our daughter, who's a graphic designer, she went to Emerson there in Boston. When she looked at it, we proposed looking at another cover. And so this cover was long in the making, and it has four layers. It's an overlay, and it's a beautiful cover. And after the book was published and we were just in such awe of this cover, we often use this cover as a visual when we do Dizio Divina. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing, the conversation that comes out of the cover. And if you look right above the forehead of the lady, you see a bird, which was amazing. I'm sure the designers didn't have that idea in mind, but a bird and and many of the persons that have attended our classes on soul care and African-American practice, they uh, say it's a peacock. So I think that's kind of (laughs) cool. And I am, I'm humbled and, and blessed that you identify the persons in the book as saints, because one of the reasons for writing this book was to be able to talk about the contemplative journey of persons from an African-American perspective. Mm -hmm. And through my studies at Gordon and through my studies over time in spirituality, and when I was at Gordon, my focus was uh, spiritual formation for ministry leaders with a uh, focus on spiritual direction and prayer. Mm -hmm. And after reading books and books and books and books over my lifetime, I had never come across any book that specifically identified African-American spiritual directors and contemplatives. Same, same. (laughs) Yes. And so it was a journey. It was a journey. And my professor, Dr. David Curry, encouraged me to pursue this journey in looking at spiritual direction from an African-American perspective. And as I looked, I was totally distraught with the information that I could not find. And I was like, I know we are spiritual people. We have always been a spiritual people. And so as I embarked upon the journey, one of the first people I identified as a contemplative was Dr. Martin Luther King. And, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King studied Gandhi Mm -hmm. with a nonviolence perspective. And when I looked at Dr. King, I was like, okay, he's a strong spiritual leader. He was in the civil rights movement, etc. And so I began to identify him as not only a spiritual director, meaning with a person or groups of people, which we knew he did all the time, but he wasn't called a spiritual director. Right. right. But I identify him as a national spiritual director. Yes. But one of my big aha moments was Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of poking around and reading through material and just reading about people of African descent. And as I was reading about Frederick Douglass, 
I was reading that his slave master's wife, Mrs. Ald, taught him to read because he showed interest. And she taught him to read. And the tool she used was the Bible hmm. because she would read to her sons. And she saw that Douglas was in, was in, around the corner listening. And so she invited him in and began to teach him to read. But in the reading process, she would slowly read the Bible. And then Douglas would repeat. And so he began to memorize some of the things that Mrs. All was sharing with him. And so I likened this slow reading and the memorization. And I'm sure there was quite a bit of contemplation. Sure. I likened this to Lectio Divina. And so uh, I will pause there because I think I kind of, I was trying to respond to your entry questions. My mini questions. Your, your entry questions. They're <laughs> great. I, I love it. So don't, don't hold back, please. I'm curious if there is a time that you identify in your life that you did begin to sense a call to ministry and could name that for yourself. Yes, I love that question. That's an excellent question. Before I go there, I would like to kind of paddle back a little. Okay. Um, because in the research, as we look at persons of African descent who practice spiritual direction, we have to go back to our African roots. Mm-hmm. There is no African-American spiritual direction without understanding our African origin. And so we must be mindful that we as a people have always been spiritual going back to the motherland. And so if we look at when did the whole ethnicity of African-American begin, it had to begin once we left the West Coast of Africa. And as we were being transported, as you read in my book, to North America, so we're going from Africa to America, we're in the Middle Passage, we're in the transatlantic, and we're on slave ships. So I use the Middle Passage as the entry point of soul care from an African-American perspective, because it had to begin somewhere. So what, it just wouldn't be the beginning of soul care. It would be uh, an inception of spirituality from an African-American perspective. And I would like to read on page 14, an excerpt from my book. And I quote from Kellerman and Edwards, who wrote the book entitled A Better Resurrection. And at the bottom of page 14, it reads, As Kellerman and Edwards visualized the transporting of slaves from Africa to America, they wrote, Even while stowed like animals below deck, they saw the shining North Star of God with upturned eyes of faith looking out spiritual portals. And then I write, while in chains, many slaves expressed great faith in God. The only one who could deliver them from such inhumane circumstances. Many were infected with ferocious diseases, including respiratory ailments, and fevers that accompanied infections. Moans and groans penetrated the atmosphere as a result of pain, sickness, sorrow, and loss. No doctors were there to prescribe medications or apply appropriate salves. No preachers were there to perform eulogies. No food was there to fill hungry bellies in the midnight hour. 
During these challenging hours and days on slave ships, many Africana fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and cousins were attentive toward each other's weary, tired, and wounded souls. Many times their conversations kept them alive. Care, love, and prayerful conversation were the best prescription for the oppressed. Imagine strangers listening to, caring for, and encouraging one another in such conditions. See them holding one another even as they died. All too often, death was inevitable and at times considered a more comforting option than life. Those who lived expressed their faith by believing and trusting God that a better day would come. And that's the end of the reading on page 15. And so I use the slave ship as the beginning of soul care. But we're also mindful that going back to the desert fathers <laughs> who were of African descent, that's even a whole nother area to discover. It is. So, so African, so if we look at Augustine and Tertullian and in origin, we look at African people of African descent, the desert fathers who were most instrumental in the formation of spirituality. Absolutely. So there's no way we can get away from strong African roots and spirituality. So I can't separate myself from Augustine. I can't separate myself from my ancestors that came across the mid-Atlantic on slave ships. But growing up on that farm in North Carolina on the East Coast, and the churches we attended, there were no women preachers, hmm. in, particularly in the Baptist church. We would, back in the day, they would, we would have services in the Baptist church on first and third Sunday, and we would go to the Holiness church on the second and fourth. Hmm. So for me, as a child, I was just attending church. I always loved church. And uh, of course, the Baptist church had a male preacher because we were missionary Baptists, and the Holiness church as I have thought about it most recently, had a woman preacher. Hmm. But I didn't, I didn't think about she was a woman preacher. But the Baptist church was our main church. Hmm. And the Holiness church was like a treat. Yeah. And so uh, I call myself Baptist Pentecostal because I have both backgrounds. <laughs> and not only am I Baptist Pentecostal, I went to a Presbyterian seminary, Princeton, and I went to an evangelical seminary, Gordon. So Gordon, I, have, yeah. I, have, I have a lot of uh, different backgrounds in my life. But growing up, no, being a preacher or minister or teacher or none of that was nowhere on my antenna. Mm -hmm. But as I, after I got married, I found myself just engrossed in biblical study and reading and prayer. And it just came natural for me. And I began to think there must be something here. Hmm. <laughs> so most of my confirmation of my calling came through other people that saw something in me. Not again. And, and then I, I had to examine, what is this? And so that's why I'm such a big proponent of the spiritual autobiography, because in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you came from. Mm -hmm. And so as I reflected on, if God calls you from your mother's womb, if a calling to ministry is God's assignment and appointment, then it had to be there all along. Hmm. And so I began to reflect back as a married woman with a child on my childhood. And I saw myself how I would sit on the front seat, wagging my feet in the Pentecostal church. <laughs> I saw myself how I would be found in a room all by myself with the Bible as a child, reading it and looking at the pictures. I love pictures. And as an adult, I just had such a passion for things of God. And there was nowhere else for me to go. I had taken every Bible study fellowship, community Bible study, uh, K-Author. <laughs> I had gone to every conference. And so it was just the natural progression to pursue my calling. And so it was very interesting. I know sometimes we don't necessarily believe in the prophetic, but as I shared with you earlier, my husband was in corporate. And so we would just kind of move around the country. So one of our moves was to 
a little town called Rochester Hills, Michigan. Hmm. And at that time, we had previously been attending Baptist churches. But when we moved to Michigan, we tried a Methodist church because my husband, who was from Tallahassee, was raised in the AME church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so we went to this church and we were sitting there and I was on the end. My daughter was next to me and my husband was next to her. So it was just the three of us sitting there. And I'm telling you, Jen, out of the blue, the pastor says, there's someone here with a call on their life. This is in 1992. He said, there's someone here with a call on their life. And he says, you can run from it, but God's not going to force you. Hmm. He said, that person knows exactly who's who I'm talking to. He said, that person dreams dreams and sees visions. And intentionally, I have not looked at that person this morning. And our daughter hunched me and she said, mom, he's talking about you. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, no. Because I had already had a career as a corporate wife. I had been in the fashion industry. I was I was living living my best life. Uh And here comes God. (laughs) (laughs) But he was there all along. And so I go home and I have a conversation with my husband. And he said, well, I guess you need to call the pastor. And I did. So so that was the beginning. Because the interesting thing was that would not have happened in a traditional Baptist church back in the day. Right. Now, there were some Baptist churches that were accepting women in ministry. Not a lot. There are more women in ministry now in in the Baptist churches, missionary Baptists and all the other aspects of the Baptist church. But it's a knowing. It's a knowing. And. I think anyone that would pursue ministry or full-time ministry or accept a call, it would be to their detriment if they did not know God was calling them. Yes. Yeah. And I think to the detriment of, of the larger church and world when, when people who are called don't know, don't, you know, don't have the ability to discern that or the support and confidence to strengthen that. Uh Yeah. It's worse for all of us. (laughs) when individual ones of us don't step into the things that God has called and created us for. I grew up in the Baptist church as well and grew up without pictures of women in ordained named ministry and yet certainly surrounded by women in ministry that were not recognized in that way. And so as as I even began to to wrestle with a sense of call to ministry, I similarly could look back and and see a long time commitment and eagerness. And, um, as I began to share that with my family, my dad just laughed like, yeah, I've known that since you were about six, (laughs) Um, which is, which is helpful to hear, you know, that, that other people see that in you, but how beautiful for your daughter to be one of those people to say, mom, he's talking about you. I think it, it can be particularly easy to think when you've set your feet on a path for a while, that it's too late to change paths. And so for you to be a mother and then begin to pursue faithfulness to this call to ministry, such a gift to, to the rest of us. I'm curious if you, you said that growing up among fruit trees with hands in the soil and on a farm really rooted you in contemplative practice. But at what point did you decide a contemplative path, a contemplative approach to spirituality feels like home or is, is a direction I want to keep going on purpose. Yes. It's, it's always been home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always been home. One of the things about living on the farm and being kind of tucked away in the woods was that you weren't trying to please your friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you weren't competitive. And as a younger child, because my sisters were, were all older than me, uh, one was six years old, one was eight, and one was 10, and my brother was four years younger. So I was kind of like, oh, I'm like out here by myself. Mm-hmm. So I was used to doing things alone and reading. And so it always felt like home, but I didn't put a name to it until a really the strong contemplative until I entered Gordon. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting at my desk one day while I, while I was working in full-time ministry at the Park Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, where my pastor is Bishop Claude Richard Alexander Jr. And our leading lady is Dr. Kimberly Nash Alexander. I remember sitting at the desk and it was like out of nowhere, God says, 
look online at Gordon Conwell. And I was like, what? (laughs) I mean, I know I have these moments with God. And so I went and looked at Gordon Conwell and they had this beautiful program on spiritual formation for ministry leaders. And I looked at the different categories, some of the topics that we'd be discussing. And so I looked at the bibliography and I was like, this is amazing. This has my name on it. Hmm. So once I entered the program at Gordon Conwell, I knew it was the fit. I knew it was what I had been looking for my whole life. Hmm. And I now, now I had a name for it. And just like I didn't have a name for the spiritual leaders that practice spiritual direction and soul care, I didn't have a name for what my life had been. I was right. always contemplative, but it just had not been identified mm-hmm. because that's not something we talked about in the predominantly Baptist church and also in the predominantly African-American church. But I love the contemplative journey and it is, it's, it, the shoe fits. Yeah. It fits perfectly. Can you recall a time you felt disconnected from the broader church? Absolutely. Because prior to sensing the direction to look up Gordon Conwell when I was at my office at the Park Church. I was on full-time staff and my focus was discipleship and prayer. Hmm. So the prayer was like, you know, both were right down my lane. We just didn't talk about discipleship from a contemplative perspective. And so at that time, I was feeling a disconnect because I felt like I was really missing something. I was burning out. I was doing everything I knew how to do, but I was tired. Hmm. And I didn't know there was an alternative journey. Right. And I was looking at the church and not just the church locally, but the church universal. And I was reading the Bible (laughs) and I looked at the church and I read the Bible and I read the Bible and I looked at the church (laughs) and I said, something's missing. Hmm. There's a disconnect because the church was not fully mirroring. We mirror it to the best of our ability. We're part of the church. We are the church. So we mirror the word to the best of our ability. But I felt something was missing. And I thought the problem was me. Hmm. But I think the bigger problem is we seek to embrace all of the disciplines of the faith. We seek to follow the word of God, but we're all still growing together. And so, yes, I felt a disconnect because I was burnt out and I didn't know how to get back to wholeness. Mm-hmm. And the way back to wholeness was to stop, right. was to take a Sabbath, was to rest, was to be still. And so when I got in the lane of my pursuing my degree, I knew I was on the right track. And I said, I had an aha moment. <laughs> nothing wrong. I mean, not, no, not that anybody's perfect, but there was, there's nothing wrong with you. You just need to better understand who you are. And part of that understanding who I am came out in the spiritual yeah. autobiography. And I love it back in the day when monks, they were required, they were required to write their spiritual autobiography before becoming a member of a, of a congregation. And I wish we would indoctrinate mm-hmm. that now because uh, this understanding your journey yeah. is imperative to be an effective disciple. And out of all the discipleship curriculum that God blessed me to develop, the spiritual autobiography had not been incorporated. But the spiritual autobiography for me is a necessity on the spiritual journey. I went to a spirituality center and they were training directors and I said to them, I said, do you require the students to write a spiritual autobiography? And she said, no. She said, we used to have it, but we took it out. And I was like, OMG, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And I explained to her how passionate I was about the necessity of writing one spiritual autobiography. And there's a great book on spiritual autobiography by Richard Peace. And it it walks you Mm. through the benchmarks of your journey. And so many times, even when uh, classes require, they kind of skim over it. So my assignment now with her school is to come in uh, yearly and to talk to the class about the spiritual autobiography. I love that. 
it's, it's been such a helpful thing for me to reflect back and to, you know, to see different streams and threads and to be able to connect some dots and being able to look back and connect dots, as, as you've said, is very helpful for paving the way forward and, and necessary. I know that prayer for you has also been another rooting experience. So would you tell me about how you feel rooted in prayer and how that has been a part of your life in this last year? Yes, definitely prayer. And I remember sitting on the sofa in my grandmother's bedroom and watching her pray. And I was just that little girl with the feet dangling. <laughs> I was like, oh, like, this is interesting. And I would just watch. You know, sometimes people can show you better than they can tell you. And I didn't really realize how that was shaping me. And as a mother and wife, I was always drawn toward spiritual things, always believed in the power of prayer, always believed in praying for everything, locally, nationally, internationally, all kinds of people, the government. And uh, when the Bible says pray without ceasing, I, I take that literally. We need to have this inbuilt prayer thermometer because Paul tells us that the spirit prays for the things that we don't know what to pray for. But in 1998, I received a call from a neighbor back in Whiteville and January the 3rd to be exact. And she said, Barbara, your mother is gone. And I said, what? She said, your mother is gone. And I said, gone where? She said, Barbara, your mother passed. And I was like, oh, no. She said, um, she told me what happened. You know, she had breathing problems and they called the ambulance. And when the ambulance got there, they did everything they could do. CPR and that was it. And she said, can you call your sister, my older sister who lives in Dayton, Ohio? I said, sure. So I picked up the phone. It was like two 30 in the morning. And I told her I said exactly what my neighbor said. Mama's gone. Mama's <laughs> gone. And she was like, what? And Jen, we both were in denial. She <laughs> said, well, you just call them back and ask them what can they do? Now, this is my big sister, right? I said, okay. <laughs> so I called, because I told her about the ambulance and everything. Everything the neighbor told me, I told my sister. But she said, call them back. And guess what I did? I called our neighbor back. Hmm. But it was a tough reality because she died unexpectedly. It was like instant. No sickness, just bam, that's it. She was 78 years old hmm. in 1998. And... We had our homegoing celebration and life goes on. But I began to notice the, the chaos in our family. And I said, mm. God, what, what is going on? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? What's going on with this one? What's going on with that one? And I sense God saying, Barbara, your family doesn't have a covering anymore. Mm. I was like, okay. <laughs> So, so what? Wow. And I'm like, who's going to do this covering of the family? Who's going to pray for the family? Who's going to lift up the nieces and the nephews and the grandchildren? And, the, and who's going to do that? And the cousins, who's going to do that? And I, I sense, tag, you're it. <laughs> yeah. So although I was praying before, prayer went to a whole nother dimension. And I believe God. I believe his word. When he says pray for the sick, I believe it. When he said pray for salvation, I believe it. When he says he would do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or even think, I believe that he can do above what I pray. And as we look at the climate of our country, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic and there was such a beautiful stillness over the earth. It's like you could close your eyes and it was like the earth was at a standstill. 
because at that time we didn't know what to do. We, everybody wasn't wearing masks and we were all shocked. And so everything was shut down. And there was this calmness over the universe. And Psalm 4610 came to mind to be still and to know that he is God. He's exalted above everything. He's exalted above the pandemic. He's exalted above the earth. He's exalted above the tension and the riots in the street. He's exalted above the racism and the sexism and the classism. He is God. God is trying to get our attention. And I believe he's saying, will you pray? We believe 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And it says, if we're on the if lane, we're in the if lane, if my people, we haven't done it. We are called by his name, but we still have yet to humble ourselves. We still have yet to pray as a nation. We still have yet to seek his face. We still have yet to turn from our wicked ways. But he said, if we do these things, then the land will be healed. And Lord knows our land needs to be healed. So yes, prayer is necessary. Personally, corporately, nationally, and globally. And I believe that's the foundation of restoration and healing of our land. But we're doing everything else, myself included. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm curious about the particular African-American leaders that you've identified in your book and their faith practices. So I'm curious, is there is there one of them? You talked a little bit about Frederick Douglass. You talked a little bit about Martin Luther King Jr. But is there another that you would want to say some more about who they are and practice that you've uncovered in their life? When I talk about the different spiritual leaders, I say, that's my favorite. (laughs) I said, oh, that's my favorite. I said, they're all my favorites. Because with much prayer, I decided on these people. And I feel that they all practice soul care and spiritual direction. One of the favorite chapters of persons that attend the class is the chapter by Dr. Renita Weems. Detachment and Attachment in Spiritual Direction. It's one of my favorite too. (laughs) (laughs) And she has such a meaningful life and is such a powerful uh, spiritual woman and hit a brick wall like I myself hit a brick wall in ministry and was looking for answers. And on her journey, she realized that she was trying to be someone that she knew she needed to be, but she knew that her soul wasn't being fed adequately. And she wasn't finding the nutrition, the spiritual nutrition she needed within her community. So she sought out other spiritual leaders and she uh, read and she found direction and she did what was necessary for her healing And she talks in her book about the discipline of detachment and attachment, understanding that in order for us to draw closer to God, in order for us to have a more intimate relationship with God, we have to detach. And we know it's a spiritual discipline. We have to detach from the things of the world. Detach from clutter, detach from toxic relationships, detach whatever you need to to detach from to become more of who God called and ordained you to be and me to be. And it's a lifelong process. Having worked in the fashion industry for my first career, and I I love the fashion industry as a little girl, I used to sew and I just enjoyed it. At 14, I was sewing professionally and making clothing and curtains and suits. It was just crazy. But over time, I have accumulated too much clothing. Sometimes I think I have. Sometimes I don't think I have because that was kind of like who I was and who I am. So I continuously seek to detach from some of the things in my closet. But there are other things I need to detach from. 
the gospel tells us a story about the strong man and the strong man came to a house and found the house swept clean. And he went back, he went away and he came back seven times stronger. And so in that passage, we understand that you can detach from something, but you leave a void there. And when there's a void there, you have to be intentional about filling that space with healthy things. So Ronita Weems is one of my favorites. But there's another one, Dr. Howard Thurman. Ooh, I love Howard Thurman. And uh, earlier we were talking about the climate of our country. And Dr. Howard Thurman writes on page 136, he writes, what would life be like if there were no suffering, no pain? The startling discovery is made that if there were no suffering, there would be no freedom. Men could make no mistakes, consciously or unconsciously. The race could make no mistakes. There would be no error. There would be no possibility of choice at any point or in any sense whatsoever. And he continues, freedom, therefore, cannot be separated from suffering. This then may be one of the ways in which suffering pays for its ride. So when we look at the trajectory of slavery and the journey of people like Douglas and Harriet Tubman and Martin Luther King and through the civil rights movement and Rosa Parks and Dr. Rosa Parks and Dr. Coretta Scott King, they both had several honorary uh, doctoral degrees. We see the journey of suffering, but out of that journey is birth freedom. And even though what we experienced over this summer included a tremendous amount of suffering, we still hold on to the hope of freedom. Slaves that looked through portals and saw a star could maintain their hope with just the visual of a star. And so, yes, suffering pays for its ride as we continue to seek God for freedom on the spiritual journey and even the freedom of detaching and attaching. That is such a beautiful visual of, of what that transition can can be like and how a how your eyes on a fixed point can be helpful in that. I'm curious if you feel like lament plays a role in that mm. transition. Absolutely. Lament is part of the true self. Lament is necessary. Lament is part of healing. Jesus wept and we must pause and lament before we respond. I was talking to a young lady her first year in high school on yesterday, and she began to lament over the state of our country. And she began to apologize, and I said, there's no apology necessary. And I asked her, how was she, what was she feeling? And so she was looking at her future as a mother, as an adult, and thinking about what she considers the abnormality of her world today and wondering why she has to go through this. Why does she have to go through COVID and why does she have to go through the injustices and the civil disagreements really a civil war. She needed to lament. 
And if we don't lament in a healthy way, it's going to come out in an unhealthy way. You know, I've not thought of lament as a liminal space before. And yet in our conversation today, it feels very much the case that lament can be a transition, a liminal space. And those are important to be in when you're in them (laughs) and not rush, rush to the other side or where it is you think that you're headed or hoping to head. I'm curious, what's at stake when we don't sit at the feet of people different from ourselves, people who don't look like us, people who don't come from the same racial or ethnic background as us? I have some ideas, of course, but I'd I'd love to hear you you say what's at stake. I think everything's at stake (laughs) because if I don't know you, how can I love you? If I don't take the time to sit with you and understand your journey, I don't have a clue about what pleases you or what, how to encourage you or support you. <laughs> and that's not just true with race. I mean, I know we're talking about race, but that's true with anything. That's true with a husband and wife. That's true with a parent-child relationship. Certainly. But I think one of the big voids in our country is definitely us not coming together with different backgrounds to understand the journey of each other. And sometimes it's challenging to understand the journey of someone else when we don't even understand the journey of ourselves. And that's why the word says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I can't give you something that I don't already have. I can't give you love if I don't have self-love. And I can't give you love if I don't understand that God loves me. And so, yes, we need to be intentional about bridging these gaps and having open and candid and true conversations. We need to pull off the mask and really sit with each other. And I think that's the beginning of some bridging the some of the racial gap. I remember in high school, I went to high school in the 70s when the schools were being integrated. And we had a group of us that got together and they gave us a white styrofoam cup. And they said, hold this cup in your hand and express through this cup how you feel about the other race. (laughs) This was back in the 70s, the early 70s. And it was a great exercise because we were just getting to know one another because prior to that, we had been segregated and not everywhere, but in our country community, of course. And it's unfortunate that we continue to have to have these conversations, but they're necessary because too often we have put a Band-Aid over an open wound. And now the wounds in so many various segments of society are being opened up. Yeah, or, or allowed to, to fester and become infected further and further rather than really having a chance to, to heal. Uh-huh. One of the most meaningful experiences of my life was doing, well, I I first came across Dr. Martin Luther King's quote that um, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America Mm -hmm. uh, in college. Mm -hmm. And as I was doing ministry internships at the time, that led me to seek out an AME pastor and, and ask if I could do an internship at her church. It was also the first time that... I had done an internship with a woman who was a pastor. And as I spent the semester worshiping with this church and and doing very, very, very little talking and a lot of learning and listening, it became clear to me that most people don't set aside time, extended time to learn and listen. And it can make a lot of your inner noise come out. I think for for many of us, some of the reasons that we go to talking is that silence is scary. And when you're in a posture of listening, there's hopefully a lot of silence. And it was so formative for me to have an extended period of time of listening and learning. And so I'm curious, have, have there been 
moments or practices or even longer experiences that you recommend to people who want to faithfully move toward another person and learning about them? Yes, I think the first of all has to be an intentionality. If, if I'm standing on one side of the street and I want to get to the other side, I want to know what's on the other side, I got to cross over. I can't just stand and look at, just look at it. Oh, that's the other side of the street. <laughs> but when I go over there, what may have appeared yellow is now gold. What may have appeared ugly is now pretty. What may have appeared as a scar is now an open sore. So if I want to get to know you, I must be intentional. And in the meantime, I must begin to deal with and understand my true self and ask God to help me abandon any false self. Earlier in the summer and spring, I think it's calmed down quite a bit now, people were more intentional about reaching out but this must still continue. There was a filming that we did, I did with another lady by a company called Silent Images. And they had us to walk in, uh, they, they chose a white lady and myself, and they had us to walk in each other's neighborhood. So I walked in her neighborhood and she walked in my neighborhood and they had cameras and a crew in both neighborhoods. And so the goal of the journey was to observe the differences, as well as the similarities. And I remember walking in her neighborhood and the aesthetics of her neighborhood didn't look a lot different than my neighborhood that I live in now, even though the community that she walked in looked a lot different than her neighborhood. And so she learned a lot about the similarities and her heart wept for the injustices. and. On my journey, I experience some of the same things I experienced in my neighborhood because I live in a mixed neighborhood, but the neighborhood she was in was a predominantly black neighborhood. But one thing that caught my eye, there were a couple of things. One thing that caught my eye was this pot. It was really a pit, but when I was walking, it looked like a pot. Like I grew up on the farm, we had what you call a wash pot, it's a black pot. And in the book, I talk about what you call a hush pot. A hush pot is where uh, the slaves will sing into this hush pot or pray into this hush pot or preach into this hush pot so that this to buffer the sound so that their masters didn't hear them. And so while I was walking, I saw this pot, but it was really a fire pit. But in my head, I had a flashback and I stood in front of this house looking at this fire pit, but a hush pot to me. And the owner came out. And he saw the camera people and he saw me and he was like, uh, what's going on? And I say, I was, I told him, I said, I was mesmerized. I was, I stopped in my tracks when I saw the fire pit and I was telling him the story. Of course he was clueless to what I was talking about somewhat, but he was kind of caught off guard, but he could have, he could have done a number of things. He could have called the police. He could have been violent. He could have been indignant, but he took the time to understand what was going on. While I was standing there, I looked in the window of his home and there was this poster. And all I kept seeing was I, the, 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 the alphabet I. And I couldn't figure it out. I'm, you know, I wear glasses and I really couldn't figure out what the sign said. I said, what does that sign say in your window? And he says, it, it says black lives matter. I said, hmm. He said, it's in my, our daughter's room. And so his daughters were making a statement to their community that even though they were not African-Americans, they wanted their community to know that they were concerned and that for them, Black Lives Mattered. And he was so cute. He says, and I agree with the sign. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I'm cool, you know, I'm good with the time. But the best word, Jen, I think is intentionality. If we want to bridge the gap, we have to be intentional about having tea, having coffee, having conferences, having, having talks, having candid conversations, 
dining together, shopping, doing everything you would do by yourself, worshiping together. Yes, Sunday is the most segregated day of the week, but if we don't want it to be the most segregated day of the week, then we have to be intentional about bridging that gap. Thank you. I have two more questions, but I am also aware that um, my computer battery was dying, which is why the sound now sounds different. I had to move inside and I know that we've gone over the hour. So do you have time for two more questions or, or shall we wrap things up? No, we can do the other questions. Thank you. I'm curious what some common feedback that you, that you get in your work, in your ministry, in your writing, what's some common feedback? Okay. I hear all kinds of things. (laughs) Well, I could basically say all good feedback. I know good feedback is not always the case. It's probably such a surprising book that it kind of startles you from the beginning as uh, from whatever genre you're coming from. I have been surprised how it crosses over. The original intention was to set a foundation for and I'm using your word for identifying saints of African-American descent who practice spiritual disciplines and in particular soul care and spiritual direction with a support of prayer. We understand that there's no effective soul care or spiritual direction. And in the book, I use those terms synonymously. There's no effective spiritual direction without prayer. And so my goal was to identify these spiritual leaders and to identify the disciplines that they practice. And so for me, that was really designed for a more contemplative read. However, churches are embracing it. Different organizations are embracing it. People are reading it as just an individual read. It's been uh, simulated into direction schools. It's been assimilated into seminaries. And uh, my strongest audience is Euro-American. So uh, there are a lot of surprises. (laughs) But the common feedback is one one lady said that she wished she could hear more of my voice. And I know I had several quotes in here, but I felt like I had to support what I was saying because I was coming out of a different, coming from a different perspective. So I had to, it was like I had to defend what I was saying. So I understand that and I don't feel some kind of way about that. She's absolutely right. And in my next book, I am writing with more of my voice as I'm writing about the different spiritual disciplines and expounding on these and adding several other spiritual disciplines. Anything that's inspired you? Lots of inspiration. Uh, When I teach class, uh, just to hear the students embrace the disciplines, just to be in in the classes online uh, from diverse backgrounds coming as far. uh, I'm in North Carolina, but having students from all over the world, actually, with different ethnicities. That's been a blessing. One lady likes the visuals and, and says that I do I did a great job on Lexio Divina. And some people like the prayers at the end of the chapter. So, But uh, lots of inspirations and persons looking forward to my next book. Including us. Kayla and I have talked at length about how excited we are to read more of your work. And yeah, as the woman, as you shared, the woman said that she would like to have heard more of your voice. I felt the same way. Not that the book needed to be any more or different than it was, Mm -hmm. but rather that I was very much looking forward to continuing to learn from you and to continue to hear your words. So thank you so much for sharing some of them with us this morning. And I look forward to, to continue learning from you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us this morning, Dr. Peacock. Thank you, Jen, and God bless you. God bless you, Kayla. And it's such a delight to have this time with you. And I pray that it can be beneficial and be helpful to someone along their journey. It certainly has for us this morning, and I'm confident that it will be for our listeners as well. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Peacock, for joining me for this conversation. And thank you for joining us at the table as a listener and a learner which is exactly what I was in this conversation as well. I had so many ahas and it gave me a whole list of new questions to carry into my reading and reflection and conversations in future with friends and family and perhaps even Dr. Peacock again. I would love to hear your ahas. So would you reply to an email that we've sent you recently and share them or share them on social media, whichever feels like the right fit. 
I'll say that if you aren't already on our list to get our email care package every Tuesday night, now is the perfect time to invite you to join us. In fact, you just head to sacredordinarydays.com slash join, and you'll be sure to get the next one. Each Tuesday night, we'll share the podcast episode that has just released as well as prayers, videos, further resources, and a couple arrows to different places around the internet that relate to the conversation. So while we hope that these conversations are wonderful as a standalone, we also hope to put them in some larger context as well, which is what you'll find in the email. If you decide to tag us on social media, we are at Sacred Ordinary Days and I'm Jen Giles Kemper. Thank you so much for joining us this week and we'll see you next week for our conversation with Father James Martin and his book, Learning to Pray. See you soon. Sacred Ordinary Days is hosted by Jen Giles Kemper and produced by Kayla Craig. Sacred Ordinary Days is a show helping you reimagine your life with Christ, one that leads you to become more wholly human, more fully faithful. Support these conversations by subscribing and leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. To learn more, visit sacredordinarydays.com. Thanks for listening.